Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan, joined as usual by Benjamin Red. How are you, Ben? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Uh, it, it's been quite a month. Uh, yeah. And uh, well, quite a hundred years, right? <laughs> uh, happy sure. centenary uh, for Greater Lebanon. September 1st, 1920, uh, the French declared Greater Lebanon. And we, we had the 100 year anniversary just this past week. Emmanuel Macron, the uh, president of France, was in town. Kind of some pomp and circumstance, but not nearly as much as you might expect, given the situation in the country. One month ago, there was this huge blast that took out a huge portion of the capital city. You know, th this is not exactly, you know, and, and it happens in the midst of Corona and in the midst of this financial and economic meltdown in the country. And it just doesn't feel like a time to celebrate Lebanon, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, just to give some background, when this, when Great Lebanon was announced, it wasn't like there was consen popular consensus across all Lebanese that this was right. the destination. Some people were like, why would we have our own little country called Lebanon if we're associated with Syria or, you know, the Ottoman Empire, depending on where you are and who your allegiance is to, etc. But, you know, um, there was serious opposition to it, especially that was basically imposed by the French. Um, so, to be celebrating, not celebrating, but to be remembering this uh, 100 years later with the French having such a huge kind of uh, making such a huge move into Lebanon and with some colonial theatrics. We can talk about that uh, in a bit. This is an interesting point that we've reached and uh, and how we've how we've reached it is also interesting. Anyway, before going into the politics, we have a bunch of news to to cover, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, everything is still just about the blast. Obviously, there, there is still cleanup going on. There are still repairs going on. There is still, we are still trying to recover bodies and uh, potentially even people who might still be alive. Uh, as out there as that seems, it's been a month. How, how, how that, how would that even be possible? But uh, yeah, at the same time, though, you know, the investigation continues going on. We hear about people being questioned and all of this stuff, but we haven't heard any answers. We have, we have no idea from official sources about really what went on. Uh, and also, I, I would add to that, that there just isn't really any public faith that anything will come out of an official Lebanese investigation. Yes, exactly. What seems to be happening now is that the prosecution team and the investigation team are focusing on people who are directly uh, responsible for uh, for the port and the oversight of, of things at the port. And the latest we've seen was prosecutors issuing an arrest warrant against uh, the, 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 the four generals that are responsible. I don't know if they are generals in, in, in position, but top security officers that are responsible for the port so we see also how uh, how that the all of the all of this case is framed but um, also what we had um, uh, in the past couple of weeks is more and more assessments coming out of the explosion and its impact and one of them by the world bank gets some attention because uh, they held a meeting with the president and they handed in that etc and this and because the world bank is doing it and this assessment says that between 3.8 and 4.6 billion dollars is the, the the cost of the damages uh, mostly to residential but also to the cultural sector uh, in the area near the port and the losses are between 2.9 and 4.5 billion dollars and the overwhelming majority of this is obviously to the port, but also to the residential neighborhoods. And uh, we know from before that uh, an estimated 300,000 people 
had to leave their homes after the explosion, or so said the governor of Beirut. So this is primarily an issue with urban housing and, and people like uh, being able to live in their houses. The assessment also talked about the damage to uh, pr- private hospitals, three private hospitals and one public hospital in the area that serve approximately 1 million people have been damaged by the explosion. When we know from our uh, previous episode with Ramiz how the situation was at the hospitals, and I've heard from many people, especially in the St. George Hospital in Ashrafiyi, that it was very heavily damaged and this affected the, the, the capacity of the hospital to treat its patients. Also, the report talks about increasing prices because of the port explosion and the damage it caused to the port facilities between 6.9 and 12.3 percent and the lowering of of government revenues from the port because the port is a major facility that brings in quite quite some revenues. Not a lot of it because of its its the, the, the nature of its management, but considerable amounts that are now compromised. And also, uh, as I mentioned before, there is still an ongoing search and rescue operation uh, that has been just all over the place uh, in the media over the past couple of days in Jamezi, in a collapsed building. Now, we are recording this on Saturday, a little bit earlier than we normally do. Uh, This isn't going to be published. You're not going to be listening to this until at least Monday. So by the time you listen to this, this whole chapter may have closed. But the update as of right now is that this week, Uh, workers found uh, signs of human life under the rubble in a building that had collapsed uh, in Jamezi. So they started digging and uh, and all sorts of things uh, went on with that. that There were were all sorts of problems with the government. And the government also has been holding up progress on this to the point of even using weapons to stop progress, uh, which is unthinkable. But it, it just goes to show that yet again, the government is not really doing what it should be doing in this case. And instead it's private people and international teams and the Red Cross and and these other groups that are really doing a lot of the work that needs to be done here. I I would just really, really remind everyone though that this is not, don't get your hopes up. Uh, This is one of those things where somebody, you know, if somebody has managed to survive, that is absolutely amazing. It's literally, you know, it's a miracle because it's been a month. However, it is very, very unlikely. So clearly everything needs to be done if there is somebody down there. But right now, it I mean, every day that passes, every hour that passes, it's less likely uh, that we could find anybody alive under there. And also turning to the medical side of things, you mentioned the World Bank report on that. Coronavirus is the compounding factor here and that we are still spiking. Things have plateaued a little bit, but the numbers are way up. Uh, This is the third week in a row with about 4,000 new cases. Now, like I said, we're recording early, so I'm going off of Friday to Friday numbers on the weekly basis, but roughly we had four weeks ago, it was 2,000 new cases, then 3,500 new cases, then 4,000 the week before last, and then 3,900 this past week. Uh, So yes, plateau a bit, but we're still way, way up there. And this brings the ad- the number of active cases to nearly 14,000, much higher than it used to be. 35 people died this week from coronavirus, and the growth in the death rate has not yet caught up with the growth in new cases. That's always a lagging thing. So we're unfortunately expecting more people to die from this. 
Local test positivity has come down from the highs that it was a couple of weeks ago. So that's a good thing. It was, you know, well above 10%. And now, uh, as of Friday, I think it was like 7.8% or something, roughly 8% in the last few days. But keep in mind, the World Health Organization guidelines on this, uh, their recommendation is that the communities don't open up until the positivity rate. And the positivity rate is just the number of positive tests divided by the total number of tests, mm-hmm. right? What percentage yeah. of the test is positive? The WHO says that you should not open up until that positivity falls below 5% for a period of two weeks. Um, And and of course, the big question that everyone is wondering about is the hospital capacity, right? So before the blast, we thought it was probably uh, 260 beds or so. Uh, Feroz Abiyad, who uh, is the head of uh, Rafi Kariri University Hospital, Beirut's main public hospital, he said that 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 capacity is increasing. But he had a thread just yesterday where he warned in the absence of a new public health approach, things will not change. COVID will not resolve on its own. Currently, the hope is the increase in hospital beds will outpace the increase in COVID cases. Unfortunately, this has been tried without success in other countries. Uh, and, And then he continued... Uh, as people get used to the new uh, high COVID numbers, life will assume a new normal. In the past, some societies rationalized and even normalized daily hunger, war, or absence of personal freedoms. Will societies normalize disease? I think that's a great question. Yeah, it still seems uh, a bit confusing to all of us. What will be? What will the situation be? For example, in a few months or in a year, etc. It's it's a bit difficult to plan anything or to to uh, to be to heck if have a certain feel of uh, certainty about it. However, we got some good news this week as well. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I, I'll take some good news because everything <laughs> seems to be fucking bad right now. I know, I know. No, actually, yesterday night, so Friday, we knew that the Bisri Dam project, the very controversial water dam project in Bisri and Shouf, is getting cancelled. And that's because the World Bank had previously given the Lebanese government a final extension of the deadline to kind of establish the preparations uh, they need for the establishment or for the building of the dam. And the Lebanese government didn't meet meet these requirements and therefore the project has been cancelled. However, it's very important to to remember that the World Bank wouldn't just cancel a project of this magnitude that where where a lot of resources have already been spent, had it not been to the pressure of civil society and uh, and local residents who have been opposed to the project for quite a while, for over two years, with many campaigns addressing the international community, the World Bank, the Lebanese government, etc., and just recently. Uh, the World Bank was doing the rapid assessment that we talked about above, uh, about the explosion uh, in the Beirut port, and at least two invitations to attend one of these assessment sessions was rejected uh, by uh, political activists because of the World Bank's support for Bissidam projects and other projects related to the central uh, construction and development. Oh, the, these guys had been invited to come to the World Bank, come, we want to hear your views, and they said, no, not until you cancel b yeah, I mean, yeah. this was the, one of the main issues that they're still collaborating with the Lebanese government establishment, etc., but also specifically uh, the Bisri project. So, gotcha. Yeah. The, so th- this is a major factor for why the World Bank would be so confident just canceling such a huge project uh, at this time. I and and I think that this sort of like removes one of those side issues that is re- really sort of a distraction these days because there are just so much else going on. This week we saw the designation of a new prime minister. Finally, uh, this was another one of those cases. It feels like it happened quickly, 
But if you look at the numbers, it didn't happen fast at all. It, it happened fast compared to in January when Diab, Hassan Diab, the caretaker prime minister, when he was first appointed, in that case, it took 51 days to even name Diab because Aoun went with this sort of novel interpretation of the constitution that says that binding parliamentary consultations, which have to be called by the president to name a new PM, don't have to be called immediately, which it's not explicit in the constitution, right? But it does say binding parliamentary consultations. In, in Diab's case, it took 51 days. Like I said, in this case, in Adib's case, it only took 21 days, which seems quite quick. But if you go back to 2005, then that's the second longest that it's taken just to name a prime minister designate. You know, the longest before Adib and Diab was Tamam Salem, who uh, was named after 14 days. So only two weeks. So it might have looked a bit like, uh, you know, fascinating how fast this happened. But it's just because it came after Diab where they burned so many names before naming Diab. Uh, if you remember, yeah, you know, yeah. talking about Safadi, talking about that guy from... Uh, construction, forgot his name now, Samir something. And like there were there were many names mentioned and kind of uh, burned by protesters in the streets or, or foiled uh, before they, they settled on the app. But it's also very fascinating that they named someone who is kind of unknown to the public, like Mustafa Adib, in such a fast pace. Because, you know, you would think they would agree on someone that they all know and they have all worked with. And we're not sure how how much that is the case, which which prompted a lot of people to, you know, to think about the reasons why why the all the major political forces kind of conform to this choice. Because I wouldn't think it was the first choice of many actors. He's not a major figure or someone uh, that uh, have had like such high office before, etc. And and as opposed to Diab, he seems to have the full force of the Sunni establishment behind him. Yeah, exactly. Behind Adib, there was full Sunni support, if you wish. Uh, uh, Saad Hariri and the former prime ministers, uh, they have this thing where they come together and kind of give their opinions on certain things, especially when it comes to the prime minister position. And they nominated Adib quite confidently. Saad Hariri seems to be happy about this choice. And uh, when Aoun called for the consultations to choose a, to designate a PM, Hours before Macron's arrival, it was literally like, let's get a pre let's get a prime minister before Macron's here. It was uh, quite funny. And all the major blocs uh, flocked to Babda, nominated Mustafa Adib, except for the Lebanese forces who are already located in, this, in the opposition. And they named uh, Nawaf Salam, uh, the Lebanese uh, judge in the International Court of Justice. But what's, imp what's interesting is that uh, so many people kind of coalesced around this name and voted for him in this quick speed. And also what's interesting is that Macron seems to be happy with this choice because he called for a quick formation of the government. And also some media reports said that Macron was the one who actually uh, chose Mustafa Adib and informed the choices or informed local politicians of the choice. We don't know if that's true, but what's for sure is that there's there's been some sort of coordination. You don't just designate a PM before Macron arrives, few hours before Macron arrives to please Macron, and then Macron doesn't isn't in the loop in that. It's almost uh, impossible to imagine. Yeah, uh, and, and of course, right now we have to mention, we have to wait for actual government formation, which everyone knows could be a lengthy process, although we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about that and Macron's role in that in a minute. Uh, but first off, who is this guy? Who is this Mustafa Adib? Previously, basically an unknown quantity. He's from Tripoli, just like Mikati. Uh, he's 48 years old. 
he he's a longtime aide to Makati. Uh, he was his advisor from 2000 to 2004, chief of staff for Makati's second term in office starting in 2011. And then he became ambassador to Germany in 2013, which if you look at reviews, many, many people have pointed this out. If you look at like reviews on Google of the Lebanese embassy in Germany, it's not a great picture. <laughs> Yeah, so what we know for sure about Mustafa Adib is, is, is that he's Mekati's guy. He's been with him for a long time. He's very trusted by Mekati to be his chief of staff and uh, previously his advisor. And, and what we heard from media is that he rewarded him by making him an ambassador abroad. This is, this is quite a prestigious position. Uh, in any case, it's very interesting that it's Mekati's aide who turned out to be prime minister with Hariri's full support because previously we had seen some rivalry between these two families, um, both big Zama on the Sunni level, uh, one from Tripoli, one uh, who runs in Beirut. And Hariri and Mekati seems to have come closer together and have built some kind of alliance recently. And uh, it's always uh, good to keep in mind that, you know, when it's uh, it's a time of financial crisis and when it's really about the money, then you will see some alliances being created that weren't there before because of class coalitions that are created. So Mikati and Hariri coming together, although Mikati is known to be the Syrian regime guy or very close to Bashar al-Assad and Hariri being on the opposite side, is very interesting in terms of class politics. I, yeah, and I, I think I, I would characterize it probably more as Makati coming closer to Hariri rather than vice versa, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, I, I do want to mention very quickly that I, I don't know Mustafa Adib at all. In general, though, I've found Makati's sort of top-level advisors to be generally on average, more competent <laughs> than than certain other politicians. Uh, so, I mean, hopefully he actually is, you know, like quite good uh, and and able to do things. Although because of his position, I don't think that he really has a lot of freedom. I mean, he basically, he's in this position clearly because of Makati and Hariri uh, and perhaps Macron. Uh, and so I, I question how much independence and how much maneuverability he actually has. But we're, we're I mean, this is, we have to wait and see. And then also because uh, thanks to Basile and thanks to Birri and thanks to all of these people who who went there and confirmed this choice or supported Adib. So, and Adib has been uh, has publicly praised Nabih Birri before in an event that was quite political in its nature, and he's known to be close to this axis. But the important thing is that all of them came together behind this choice, which makes it more concerning and not less. National unity in Lebanon usually means establishment unity and usually means a government of more or less politics as usual. Adib has vowed to create a cabinet of specialists, but we, we, we've seen this film before. We, we know what happens. The politicians, just like they did in the current cabinet, you know, they, they said the same thing where we're going to put in specialists uh, and, and they did to a certain degree, but it didn't matter whether they were specialists or not, because it became quite apparent that, you know, probably 80, 90% of the time, these ministers basically voted in favor of whatever they were told to, it, it, it seems, from the outside. Exactly. But maybe what's different this time is there's so much external pressure, right? Because now mm. it's not like the establishment is doing this on its own and, you know, just thinking about what new faces to bring. Now there's someone looking over all of them uh, with a stick, with a very large stick and also quite a large carrot, looking at them and watching every choice they make. So here we come to uh, to Macron's visit, which 
really was fascinating in terms of the theatrics to me, right? He arrives in Lebanon, he visits Fairuz, he gives her a medal. Fairuz is an iconic Lebanese singer that Ben doesn't appreciate. <laughs> That's in summary. <laughs> you're you're, you're going to turn all of the audience against me. Um, so let's leave, the, leave that disagreement uh, there. Um, Anyway, so he visits Beirut the next day. He goes to Babda, he has lunch with, uh, he meets with Michel Aoun and Birri, has lunch with all of these political blocks, and he talks to them like they're, they're, you know, he's motivating kids in school who haven't been performing so well. Then he finishes that and he meets in the Pine residence where France announced Greater Lebanon 100 years ago, the same building. He, he meets with the top political leaders, including the heads of blocks. And throughout all of this, what's been happening basically is that Macron comes to Lebanon, imposes things on, on the politicians, tells them, look, this is what you have to do in order to get more funding from the international community led by France. If, if, you, wanna, if you want another conference that brings you the money that you were promised back in the Sadr conference, then you have to do this and this and that. And this time, it looks like the French were not general about it. They were quite specific. And they presented, and before Macron arrives, uh, arrived, media reports said that the French embassy had presented um, a policy paper or a, an agenda kind of for the new government with many reforms and also even a timeline. Is the, is the mandate over? <laughs> you I'm, mean the French mandate? Yeah, I mean, is that, did that end at some point? Or I I'm, I'm forgetting, I, I, don't, I don't remember. Uh, uh, yeah, the the reforms that were laid out they were they were quite specific. Uh, you you probably read about them, but you know just highlights. First off, the government needs to be formed in fifteen days. Which, if you know anything about the government formation process, that is wildly fast for Lebanon. So that's going to be the first test. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we will know whether the politicians came together. I, some people frame it as whether Mustafa Adib is able to put this together. No, it's not. <laughs> it, it, it is yeah. not up to him. He is one voice that probably is nowhere close to the most important voice in the room uh, it, for these kinds of consultations. And, and then after government is formed, within another couple of weeks, they need to resume talks with the IMF. And then in another 15 days, they need to actually implement a capital controls law that is approved by the IMF. That wording gave me a little bit of pause, right? So is this law just going to be written in Washington or something or in Paris and then presented to MPs to pass? I I, I don't know. But Macron says, uh, according reportedly, that he wants an IMF-approved capital control law to be implemented. You work it out by October 15th. Uh, he also wants uh, power sector reforms, uh, in, including, I think, interestingly, shelving the plans for the Salata power plant, which is sort of a baby of Gibran Basile and the FPM. And, and the government needs to appoint a lot of people, including to the National uh, Anti-Corruption Authority. Yeah, and also what the plan had, uh, according to the reports, was legislative elections uh, earlier than their schedule. So in September, one year after the government is formed, which is September 15, 2021, is when the French are asking for uh, early parliamentary elections. However, Macron, when he was talking to journalists, kind of took it back and said there's no consensus around early elections. So uh, it seems that this is kind of off the table and it's clear why this is off the table. The politicians are the, at probably their least popular moment ever, especially people like, you know, Basile and uh, Birri and uh, Hariri and all of these people and Jumblat. So they don't want another election at, at any cost. So probably this is one of the things that Macron gave away. But we forgot to mention something that, apart from the conditions that are mentioned in the French paper, if you wish, 
and the carrot, the, the the promise of funding in the future. What uh, what we know from uh, a major reporter in Le Figaro, the French newspaper, is that Macron actually had been talking with Donald Trump and thinking about sanctions to be imposed on top politicians in Lebanon. And uh, these include people like Basile, like Hariri, like Birri, not like minor uh, figures at all. Um, Which echoes sort of U.S. messaging as well. Yeah, but it's uh, it's it looks like it's targeted at all of the political class rather than just Hezbollah's traditional allies. You see yeah. what I mean? So yeah. it's not really the same line of politics than 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 Trump. The motivation seems different. Yeah, maybe maybe it's kind of a strategic kind of uh, alliance or synergy between the two uh, foreign policies when it comes to Lebanon. But this is very important to keep in mind because. Otherwise, it's hard to imagine why the Lebanese political class came together and uh, basically sat in the Pine residence and listened to Macron and his wishes. You see what I mean? Yeah. But coming back to this French policy agenda, um, it's very interesting that it uh, it kept some things kind of out. I didn't focus on them. Obviously, things like social justice and redistribution, we expect that. Uh, things uh, related to secularism, also we expect that because historically the French have been quite keen on maintaining kind of the particularity of Christian representation in Lebanon and all of that. But also there is very little mentioning of accountability for past crimes, for financial crimes, for corruption, also for the for the port explosion, etc. So it mentions, you know, a transparent investigation into the port explosion, but it must, doesn't, doesn't really delve into things related to accountability. And many people have been pointing that out. And it's very disappointing to see that you know, there is there is no conception of justice as much as there's this idea that, you know, you need to fix the bottom line here so that we can come in and invest our money. You see what I mean? So it's more mm. like a very pragmatic, more like, you know, yeah. just basics rather than going at the real problem in Lebanon, which is distribution of power, of wealth and the, the issue of accountability and basically the lack of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to mention very quickly that, you know, th- this seems like a whole lot to happen very quickly, so much so that, I mean, it, it just seems like pure fiction, right? There's no possible way that this can happen. I, I mean, obviously, though, we live in very, very strange times. Do you think that politicians are at the point where they're going to actually flip and do all of this stuff that R- Macron uh, uh, reportedly wants? I think they have very few options today. You know, the political establishment today is in this position where popular approval is almost nothing. Uh, international support, very, like very mediocre, very minimal, given the size scale of the situation. We're talking about destruction and, and unprecedented destruction in the city uh, in a few days, and plus this whole economic and financial melt- meltdown, and nobody really stepped in except for France, right? And when ste- when France stepped in, they seemed to be very conforming, very obedient, uh, more or less, because, I think, because they need funding. The state cannot continue. The state will collapse in Lebanon if it doesn't get funding. And uh, this is primarily what's governing, I think, the decision-making today. Who will give us the money to be able to survive in the system? Otherwise, it will collapse, and we don't know what's going to happen next. So France doesn't want the unknown to be to happen, and because they think of it as the worst possible scenario, perhaps. And also the politicians in Lebanon don't want to lose the grip of power. So they meet on this at this point where the politicians make some compromises, but are not big enough to be actually re- reversing their interests in, in governing. Like they, 
they're not big enough for them to benefit more of being outside the system than inside it. You see, they need to be inside the system. They need to be uh, supervising the investigations surrounding the, the all the crimes that have been committed in Lebanon, including the port, because it is a crime in one way or another, and including all the financial uh, smuggling and money laundering and, you know, uh, the incredible interest rates and everything that has happened in the financial sector in Lebanon. They need a way out of this, and that's why I think they can't give up power. So they need anything that helps them remain in power for the upcoming period and France is kind of providing that by promising them funding in return for very basic reforms. But at the same time, you know, back when uh, the, the Diab government was in IMF talks, we saw a what looked like a concerted effort to derail those because, you know, one line of analysis went that the Zoma or some of them that were involved thought, oh, if we go through with this IMF program, we will lose power because they're going to actually discover things that we don't want discovered. They are going to take revenue streams uh, away from us through austerity and stuff like that. So why now would they be on board with an IMF program? I don't, I don't get that. I mean, we can't forget that the port explosion is a really major event. And we should always like know what event is kind of life-changing for politics or not life-changing but you know what event is a milestone something after which things are different from before it and i think the port explosion is that because first they can't like they can't afford to repair the damages they can't afford to, re- to reconstruct and to rebuild, rebuild the port but also the in terms of credibility they lost all of it like literally all credibility it makes it makes it much more difficult to govern. Hadn't they already lost credibility, though? You can say so. I but mean, they October seventeenth. That's that's what we've heard. Like the masses rose up. The government is no longer credible. The parliament is no longer credible. So, I mean, you can't lose any more credibility if you've if you've already lost it. Or or are we just not uh, recognizing that the government really was credible? I mean, what I'm saying is that the urgency increased incredibly and uh, this puts them in an even more difficult situation yeah. the central bank is saying they can only subsidize basic necessities for the next what two three months probably so we're in this very difficult position where um, they won't be able to afford just a normal functioning of the system and if bread is a thouper pack people might actually at that point start killing each other or the politicians. I mean, we're right, going right. off the cliff and they know yeah, that, you see. Yeah. And another thing is that France is a political actor. It's not the IMF as much. Obviously, there are political implications to everything that the IMF does. But the IMF is a bunch of technocrats saying, look, um, you you have to do this and this and that. These are the macroeconomic models that we follow and these are the results we want, etc." France is more flexible than that, as we've seen historically in Lebanon. It's been funding the political establishment almost continuously when it's in crisis, even when the financial and economic policies fail miserably, they keep funding us. And maybe it's different now with Macron, as he says, but what we know for sure is that it's much easier for Macron to make a deal with Hariri and Miqati and Birri and Basile uh, than for them to be able to use the money that they get from the IMF. You see what I mean? Right. So in that sense, the, the conditions and the urgency of the situation and also the side who's promising money makes it more uh, and more attractive and urgent for the politicians to kind of go along with it. So if the IMF closes one door, then maybe Paris will open another. 
Yeah, and what they were doing before is that they were postponing a bit with the IMF talks in order to force the IMF and who was resisting the, the bank's interest in Lebanese politics to kind of to, to bow down and, and let things happen the way that Riyad Salemi and his bankers friend want. But now they can't do this, any, this anymore because if Riyad Salemi decides to lift the subsidies, his head will be targeted. Do you see what I mean? Like mm. people are thinking now of their own continuity in Lebanon, and this is where the sanctions yeah. come for, come uh, as well. Because when you're thinking of sanctions, if Riyad Salemi is uh, is escaping people in Lebanon, where will he go? <laughs> right? If Basile <laughs> is trying to escape, he will try to go to the west or somewhere where uh, if if they have, they have sanctions against against them. That's quite threatening for them because they and, understand in their subconscious. And that this I might assume, happen. I assume most of these people have considerable wealth overseas. Exactly, especially that in I the mean, West, specifically. It would be great <laughs> if they like freeze all of their assets and send them over as fresh dollars. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't <laughs> mind that at all. It's probably not never going to happen, but that would be great. And they know that for sure. And one, one like just a funny anecdote. One thing that happened this uh, this week as well is that a journalist asked Walid Jumlat. So are you ready to bring your money from abroad, from your foreign accounts into Lebanon? And Jumlat was like, no, I don't have the the uh, technical literacy to answer this question. Maybe I don't have the knowledge, the technical knowledge about how to do that. But what's important is this and that. And he completely switched topics, obviously. But it's very funny, you know, when you ask them <laughs> or when you just look at how much money they have abroad, you see that those who have leverage against the Lebanese political establishment uh, is not actually the people as much as to control the, the, their, their escape plan or their wealth or their safety net and all of that, you see. So Washington and Paris have exactly. a lot more say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, the, the scale of Macron's visit here, it just seems larger than life. It's like Macron was president of Lebanon. Really, yeah. you know, visiting Feirouz, uh, you know, having these photo op type things bizarrely snapping at a journalist uh you know oh, it's the same journalist who wrote the article that had macron was going to impose sanctions on the Lebanese politicians so he's telling them what you did was irresponsible and insensible because it was uh, harming basically my plan in lebanon and the relation he said the relations between lebanon and france but what he meant was basically harming my plan in lebanon and making it by making it public i, I don't know if whenever i see a president throw a tantrum like that it does not look good. Yeah, Macron is known <laughs> for it, right? He's been yelling at workers and protesters for ages. My 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 point though is that like this is much much bigger than just like Lebanon, right? Like it's not like France is just so interested just in Lebanon itself. No, there's a there's a larger strategy at play for them. I mean, yes, definitely. You can't ignore that France is looking at what Turkey is doing and basically benefiting from this vacuum that exists in Lebanon today, which is that no Western or Arab or regional powers seem to be so invested in Lebanon. And therefore, there is this vacuum of influence, of soft power, of, of uh, coming in and basically establishing establishing your presence in the economic sphere and the political sphere. And, and, and they're already sort of like the first movers when it comes to Lebanon in, in a lot of respects, at least from the West. Yeah, definitely. And uh, if you think about how, for example, the Gulf is now more or less divided between Hamad bin Salman, who isn't so invested in Lebanon, and Qatar, the, which is in an alliance with Turkey against the, the Gulf uh, and against uh, the Gulf and basically the Gulf-Trump alliance, more or less, but also Trump has great relations with Erdogan, and it's a whole fucking mess. <laughs> what I mean to say is that there are many polls now when it comes to regional politics, 
and it's not like Mohammed bin Salman and Trump and uh, Macron are against Iran and Russia and right, it's not that right, straightforward right. right and Absolutely. there are more nuances there but what's 100% certain is that there is a very serious conflict right now happening between Europe and Turkey and we're going to be seeing the manifestations of that in the year or two years to come but what this mainly means is that France and all major European powers have to push uh, as much as possible to prevent Turkey from taking up m- too much influence in the region and having these pockets, these spots where it has uh, more power, exaggerated power compared to to other forces. So Lebanon might be one of these areas. They're already in kind of a conflict in Libya, uh, in in Greece. Uh, the, the situation between Greece and the Tur- and Turkey is quite escalated now mm-hmm. militarily in the uh, and the waters between the two countries. So there are many places where the tensions are happening and probably Lebanon is another manifestation. And if you see the reported reactions of Turkish officials to uh, Macron visiting the country, you will see how, you know, they were calling it colonial, they were mocking it and they were doing all, saying all of these things to kind of, kind of in a very aggressive attitude against, uh, against Macron because, and from that we can conclude then you, that, you know, Turkey is not happy about this. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be really, interesting to see how this plays out because i mean you know you look at this sort of timetable reportedly laid out by france and you think how is that i mean clearly this isn't going to happen the way that it's just laid out but parts of it may happen and we're starting to enter this period yeah i mean we're we're definitely not at the bottom yet right we're not we haven't hit rock bottom there's still you know subsidies uh in place for things like wheat and medicine and uh fuel things are going to get worse. The situation is going to get more desperate. And that means that more rapid change is possible just, just out of desperation. But it, I don't think it's going to follow this you know, clear path uh, for sure. It's going to get messy. It's definitely going to get messy. And definitely like the, this, this patriarchal attitude of Macron towards the country might blow in his face soon um, because he's he's been he's been portraying himself as you said he's kind of the president of <laughs> Lebanon. Someone told me like Macron is the new Bayel Kill, you know, uh, <laughs> which is Aoun's Aoun's uh, uh, kind of adjective. Anyway, uh, he's basically yeah he's coming as Papa Macron, yeah, you know, like uh, uh, whatever you want, we do unless uh, uh, scolding the politician is politician children and everything. And, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. you look at the pictures, just one thing. You look at the picture that he posted on Twitter when he was standing, um, when he was meeting with the politicians, and you see how the camera angle and everything made him look like you know he's literally looking down uh, on all of them. It's it's I really like I really appreciated the little details that tell us kind of what Macron was trying to portray himself as in this. Anyway, Papa Macron has to think again before like, you know, going in uh, full scale with the, with the Lebanese politicians because eventually it's going to be a failure. Uh, no government where the oligarchs have their shares in Lebanon will ever achieve anything because the real things that we need to do are things that contradict these interests, okay? Yeah. So yeah, I would think twice before you know betting on this. But if he's if he's doing it for geopolitical reasons and he doesn't really care about how things happen in Lebanon, then okay, fine. But if it's real, if he really has his hopes, as he says to a journalist, you know, it's a risky bet that I'm willing to take, etc. If he's really um, you know convinced of this, then yeah, haram, habibi, Papa Macron, you're not you you're not necessarily right about that, and you probably should think you know um again about france's how, which 
channels you want France's interest to be uh, manifested in in Lebanon in the future because the allies you're betting on today are not very reliable. All right, and I think we're going to have to leave it right there. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, we will, inshallah, be back next week with another episode. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.